We read the first few verses of the book of Hebrews just a moment ago with Brother Adam. Uh, I preached a couple weeks ago also out of the book of Hebrews. It's been a book that I've been working through. It's an awesome, awesome book. Uh, and it's, so it's been one that I have been studying myself, and that's where this thought came from. You'll notice when we began the book, it begins a little bit differently. It begins with absolutely no introduction. It begins with no greeting. It begins with no lead-up. It just jumps right into the book. And the book of Hebrews is a bit unusual in the New Testament because it's not clearly known who the author is. There's, again, no introduction. There's no lead-up into the book. Uh, it is my personal belief that Paul is the author of the book. Um, I think that you can look through the book, you can see uh, many similarities to Paul's writings, various different things like that, uh, and to my mind, it would make sense that he would write a book to the Jewish people anonymously, since they had pretty much rejected him entirely previously. Um, but regardless of who wrote it, we do know a couple things just by looking at the book regarding the author. We know, first of all, that the author was a master of the Old Testament scriptures. The book of Hebrews is not necessarily a long book. It's only 13 chapters. But within those 13 chapters, there are over 35 different quotations back to the Old Testament. In chapter 1 alone, there are five different psalms Referenced. And as you read through, you'll find references to the Psalms. You'll find references back to the Pentateuch, the Law of Moses, the first five books. You'll find references to the different prophets. Pretty much every area of Old Testament scripture is tied into this book of Hebrews, either as a proof text, if you will, for the author, or as illustrations, or as supporting his points. He was a master of the Old Testament scriptures. But he was also very knowledgeable about the person of Christ and who Jesus was. The whole purpose of the book is to show the Jewish people how Christ is better than everything that was given before. He's better than the law. He, his sacrifice is better than the Old Testament sacrifices. He is a better high priest than the Old Testament high priests. Uh, he, is, he is better than Moses. He is greater than Abraham. It is showing the person of Christ being superior to all the Old Testament. The phrase is used in the book that the law was but a shadow of things to come. And the purpose of the author in this book is to show the Jewish people saying, hey, the Old Testament was good. The law was good. Here's something better. Here's Christ. Here's something better. And we're going to see a comparison just in these first uh, couple verses that we read. Uh, and our focus is not necessarily that contrast uh, too much, but it's giving us a little bit of background on the book. We're going to be looking through these first three verses. We'll work through verse 1, through verse 2, and verse 3. And then there's a thought that I want to draw out of the end of verse 3. So we're going to be working through these three verses this morning. Siri is uh, waking up on me here. Uh, chapter 1, look at verse number 1 if you would. It says, God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. Again, really no introduction, just jumps right into his thought. Is God who at sundry times and in diverse manners. Both of those words meaning almost the same thing. Sundry meaning diverse, more than one, several, and then diverse itself meaning different 
or differing. He's saying God in the Old Testament spoke in a variety of different ways and different times. If we look at the Old Testament from the time where Moses is given the law at Mount Sinai all the way to Malachi, the last book, it's a span of about 12, 1300 years. It truly was a very long period of time. And when you look through, you see as well a wide variety of ways that God spoke Onto the fathers. We know first and foremost that it was always through the Holy Spirit. First Peter tells us that a holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost, but it was through a number of different ways. It was accomplished through dreams. Think Joseph and the dreams that he had regarding his brothers. God gave him those dreams. Uh, they were looking ahead and God was giving him a message through those dreams. Uh, visions were used. When you read through Daniel, you read through Ezekiel, you read through the prophets. Uh, and these, these visions were given. Sometimes they were understood. Sometimes they had to be clarified. But visions were used. Sometimes angels were used as messengers. Think Samson in the, uh, in the book of Judges, how an angel came to his parents. Same thing with Gideon. An angel came to him. Uh, and called him and gave him that message. Sometimes it was direct communication. Uh, regarding Moses, the Lord said that he spoke face to face as a man speaketh with his friend. Uh, when he was before the fiery bush in the wilderness, uh, God was speaking directly to Moses. And so there's a wide variety of different ways that God communicated, God spoke, God gave his word in the Old Testament. That is what verse 1 is telling us. Sundry times, diverse manners, all different ways, he spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets. Look now at verse 2, and we'll see immediately a contrast. Remember, Hebrews is a book of contrast between the Old uh, Testament and then Christ. It says, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath the appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. Rather than using visions or dreams or whatever in the Old Testament, the author is telling us that now the word of God has come through his son. We're shown that contrast there. Uh, and the, the mindset of that is if the word that was spoken through dreams was important, if the word that was spoken through angels was important, how much more important is the word spoken by the son of God? Uh, chapter two gives that thought in the first couple verses. Uh, and we're not gonna break into that. That's not where we're going. But the point is saying, hey, if you thought the Old Testament was important because it came from angels and it was important, it was absolutely important, this is coming from the Son of God. Hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. It uses the phrase, whom he hath the appointed heir of all things. Uh, Christ is identified as the heir of all. I read this quote when I was studying for this. I thought it summed up this idea of Christ being the heir perfectly. Uh, it was an author, it was a, a, a biblical scholar writing a work on the book of Hebrews. And he made the statement saying, the heir of all things is he in whom all things terminate, have their fulfillment and come to their natural or determined end. Everything begins with Christ and everything ends with Christ. We'll see that again uh, in just a moment in this verse. Uh, and then interestingly enough, Paul, or the author, if it is Paul, whoever it might be, makes a statement, hath in these last days. Uh, it's very easy to look at our world around us uh, and, and, and see all that's going on and see the turmoil. Uh, and I see that we are living in the last days, and I truly believe that 
It's also interesting to note that Paul considered himself to be in his last days. Uh, if it's been 2,000-ish years since Paul wrote these words and considered himself in the last days, how much more so are we? First uh, Thessalonians deals with that issue of Christ returning. And the point of that, the point of reminding ourselves of that is not to become discouraged or anything like that, but rather it should motivate us, it should drive us that our time is short. We need to redeem the time, take advantage of every day that we are given. Paul reminds them, hey, in, we are in these last days. Um, and then the rest of the verse tells us, uh, whom hath he appointed heir of all things. We looked at that and says, by whom also he, Christ, made the world. Um, it's interesting to note there the correlation that Christ is given in connection to creation. Uh, John chapter 1, you don't have to turn there, they're a very familiar verse, probably most of us could quote them. In the beginning was the Word, Christ. The Word was with God and the Word was God. Verse 3 tells us that all things were made by Him and without Him was not anything made that was made. I find it very interesting that in the same verse uh, we are told that uh, Christ is the heir of all things. He's where all things terminate. He's also the beginning of all things. Uh, growing up, we had a, a program. Uh, it was called Neighborhood Bible Time, similar to a VBS type thing. Uh, and they had a whole bunch of things, that, a curriculum that they would work through. And one of the things that the phrase, one of the phrases that was repeated over and over and over again was everything begins with God and everything ends with God. And we can see this thought laid out here in connection with Christ. He's the heir of all things. And then we're also told uh, that he is the creator of all things, by whom also he made the world. Verse 3, who? Christ, being the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of majesty on high. We are shown here the, the connection between Christ and God, who being the brightness of his glory. We see Christ, first of all, being the brightness of his, God's, glory. Much of the first chapter of Hebrews and even chapter 2 is showing the divinity of Christ. It is showing how he is superior to angels. He's superior to any other created being. It's emphasizing the fact to the Jewish people that Christ is God. He's not another prophet in a long list of prophets. He's not another messenger, but he is God. And we see that here, who being the brightness of his glory. This is an interesting phrase here. And I did a little digging, a little uh, studying on this. Uh, and in the context of the Jewish people, this phrase would have held a very significant meaning. If you would, turn back to Exodus chapter 40. Keep your finger here in Hebrews. This is just a brief little detour. Being the brightness of his glory, the author of Hebrews writes in verse 3. Exodus chapter 40 is dealing with the construction of the tabernacle. It's dealing with the construction of the Old Testament, the Jewish uh, worship system. And Exodus 40 is the conclusion of that. It's when everything has been made. Everything has been established. It's being dedicated. Look, if you would, at verse number 34 and 35. Exodus chapter 40, verse number 34 and 35. It says, Then a cloud 
covered the tent of the congregation, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation because, of the, because the cloud abode thereon, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. This phrase, the brightness of his glory, is a reference back to the glory that was on this tabernacle. Uh, and when that was there, the Jewish people looked at that. They knew the presence of God was there. They knew that his glory was there. It says Moses could not even enter into it because of how much of God's glory was there. This phrase is used regarding Christ. And this would have clicked in the Jewish mind knowing their history, knowing of the tabernacle, knowing of the glory of the Lord there, who being the brightness of his glory, giving Christ the same glory as God the Father. I read a, a, a quote that was comparing uh, these two. It said that Christ is as to the Father as rays are to the sun. It is a manifestation of his glory, and they are impossible to separate. They're impossible to divide uh, Christ from the glory of God. Back in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 begins, being the brightness of his glory, referring back to that glory of God. It says the express image of his person. Christ in who he is is an exact representation of who God the Father is. Jesus himself said this in John chapter 14, uh, is the dialogue back and forth with his disciples. It goes on for several chapters. In John chapter 14, uh, verse number 9, Jesus saith unto them, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, show us, the Father. Philip made the statement. He said, show us the Father and we'll be satisfied. And Jesus said, you haven't gotten it yet. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Christ's character, his nature, all of it is an express image of God. It is an exact representation of who God is, his holiness, his goodness. His, and we could go on and on through all the lists of God's attributes. Christ is that representation of who God is in down to every detail. Uh, and then verse 3 continues, upholding all things by the word of his power. We saw back in verse 2 how Christ is credited with creating things. Uh, we see that continued again here, this time holding things together. Colossians chapter 1 verse 17 says, and he Christ is before all things and by him all things consist. Verse 3 tells us upholding all things by the word of his power. And then this verse closes with two different phrases, and they deal with two different uh, attributes of Christ's ministry. We see in this verse both his priesthood and his kingship. It says, when he had by himself purged our sins, that's his priesthood, sat down on the right hand of majesty on high. That's his royalty. That's his authority. And the rest of the book of Hebrews uh, dives into that thought of Christ's role as high priest. And we're not going to follow that all the way down uh, throughout the, the rest of the book of Hebrews. But I want you to notice that phrase in verse 3, when he had by himself purged our sins. The word purge is a very interesting word. It's a word 
that carries with it the idea of cleansing. It carries with it the idea of removing impurities, but it's also a fairly harsh word. It's not a word that simply means you just wipe down a surface with a little cleaner. It goes a lot deeper than that. The idea of purging, the dictionary definition uh, is to cleanse, to purify, to clear from defilement. Maybe the most common way we would use this word is in regards to metal. Turn back to the book of Malachi. It's the last book of the Old Testament. If you find Matthew, go to your uh, left, just a few pages. Malachi chapter 3. And we'll see an example. We're not going to necessarily be looking into this verse outside of seeing an example of this word being used here and getting, getting an idea of the emphasis, the weight of this word. Malachi chapter 3, and verse number 3, it says, And he, the Lord, shall sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as silver and gold, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. This idea of purging precious metals, silver and gold, the process of it is a fairly strenuous process. You have to heat that liquid to its melting point to where that gold, that silver becomes liquid, and only then are you able to remove, to scrape off the impurities that would rise to the surface, whether it's other pieces of metal, whether it's rock that has been embedded in it. You have to be able to heat that metal to such a degree that it is liquid, and only then can you remove the impurities. The idea of purging is a word that is the idea of cleansing, but on a much more serious note. And as we see in the Word of God, it is often a word that is used in relation to purging, cleansing from sin. For just a couple minutes, we're going to be looking at this idea of the purging of a Christian. If you are somebody who takes an outline, I do have somewhat of an outline. It would go number one, it would go number two, and then I have a couple points under number two. Flip back, if you would, to Hebrews chapter one. The purging of a Christian. As I did a study through through the Bible, looking up instances where this word occurred and the context of what is going on in those passages, I found that there were two main types of purging that occurs in a Christian's life. The first one, number one, would be the purging of our sin as far as our standing between us and God. What we see in Hebrews chapter one, the verse that we just read, is an example of that. Christ, when he had by himself purged our sin, cleansed our sins. Flip over to Hebrews chapter 9, a few chapters to the right while you're turning there. Isaiah chapter 6 uses this word as well. Uh, it's a famous chapter. It is uh, Isaiah's vision with God where he sees the Lord high and lifted up. We know the passage. Uh, and his response is, woe is me, I'm unclean. Uh, and the angel, the seraphim there, brings him a coal. Verse number 7 says, And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips. Thy iniquity is taken away and thy sin 
is purged. Uh, I find it interesting that it is uh, something that is very hot, a coal there. Uh, and it's a symbolicness of Isaiah's sin being purged. Hebrews chapter 9, if you're there, verse number 22 says, And almost all things by the law are, or excuse me, almost all things are by the law purged with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. This idea of our purging of, of, of our sin as far as our standing with God. And like the purging of metal, like the purging uh, of cleaning out impurities, it was a strenuous process. Turn to Isaiah chapter 53. Fortunately for you and I, we did not have to go undergo the purging of our sin as far as our standing with God. If we did, we'd be burning in hell for all eternity. But someone else took that purging for us. Isaiah 53. We're coming into Christmas time. This is a passage that is often gone to. It's part of Handel's Messiah, uh, maybe one of the most famous works of music ever written. Isaiah 53, familiar verses, 3 through 7, prophesying of Christ. It says, He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is done, dumb, so he opened not his mouth. We read through the Gospels. We read through the accounts of what Christ has gone through. Here in Isaiah, it's laid out for us. Christ took the purging of our sin upon us. 1 Peter chapter 2 says, Who in his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. As far as our sin and our eternal standing with God. If you're here and you're saved to this morning, that record, that account has been purged, and the Lord looks at me, he looks at you if we're saved with the righteousness of Christ. Amen. Isaiah chapter 61, uh, maybe one of my favorite verses in the Bible recently, says this, I will rejoice in the Lord, my soul shall be joyful in my God, for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decketh herself with ornaments, uh, and as a bride adorneth herself with jewels. He hath covered me, he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation, he hath covered me with the robe of righteousness. Amen. Hebrews chapter 1, the verse we read, says, when he had by himself purged our sin. He took that cleansing upon himself. That's the first type of purging that we see in the Bible, the purging of our sin as far as our standing between us and God. The other type of purging that we see as we look through the scriptures is purging within our lives. Purging within our lives. The purging that we just looked at is our eternal record with God. That is cleansed. That is clean. We are viewed 
with the righteousness of God. As the song says, the old account was settled. But as humans, as we live through this life, we are not instantaneously made perfect. If we were, we'd be taken to heaven the minute we got saved. But there is a process that goes on in our life by which God desires to make us look more like him. There is a purging within our lives. Couple types of this. We see a purging or a cleansing of sin out of our lives. Turn over to uh, Psalm chapter 51. Psalm chapter 51. While you're turning there, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says, Purge out therefore the old leaven. Leaven in the Bible is a picture of sin. Purge out the old leaven that ye may be a new lump as ye are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Psalm chapter 51, very famous passage, is after David has been confronted regarding his sin with Bathsheba. It's his psalm of repentance. Uh, in verse number 7, he makes the statement, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. David is, David's prayer here is regarding the purging of sin out of his life. In 1 Corinthians, the verse that I read just a moment ago, is purging out sin in the life of a Christian. Ultimately, our account is settled with God. But in our day-to-day -day life, there needs to be a purging, a cleansing of the sin out of our life. But we see not only is there a purging of sin... There's also a purging of the unfruitful parts of our life. Turn to John chapter 15. John chapter 15 is again that part of that long passage of Jesus discussing uh, and teaching his disciples right before he goes to the cross. John chapter 15 Verse number two, Jesus speaking, verse number one, he tells us that I am the vine, ye are the branches. Verse number two, every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. Note the second half, and every branch that beareth fruit, that should be you and I as Christians, every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. The analogy given here is that of a, a gardener, a farmer, if you will, who is working with a fruit-bearing tree, uh, a vine, whatever it might be. And I am by no means a master gardener. Uh, I can barely keep a few tomato plants alive. But what I have heard, uh, what I have from reading and studying and looking into that, is that if you have a plant that is bearing fruit, it's growing fruit. It's producing as it's supposed to. You don't just leave it alone. You don't just let it by itself and let whatever happens to it happens. You are pruning it. You're clipping off certain branches. You're removing areas where it may be overcrowded and the sunlight can't get in. Or maybe there's some bad branches that are stealing nutrients away from the good branches. You purge it. You prune it, not because there's anything necessarily wrong with the tree, but because you want it to be better. You want it to produce better fruit, 
more fruit, healthier fruit. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2 gives us this same thought. It's regarding vessels in the house of the Lord. Paul writes, if a man purge himself from these, these is previously a whole long list of things that should not be in a Christian's life. He says, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use, prepared for every good work. The idea of purging in our lives is not only to remove sin, to get sin out of our lives, but it's also to remove things that are holding us back from being what God wants us to be. I'm reminded of the passage in Hebrews chapter 11 where it talks about the sin and the weights, those things that are not necessarily sinful, that may not go directly against one of the Ten Commandments or, or something that may not go directly against a specified commandment, but rather it is something that is holding us back from being a more fruitful Christian, from being more like Christ. It's the purging of the unfruitful parts of our lives. The purpose of this within our lives, whether it's sin, whether it's unfruitfulness, is not so that we go through our lives and we're constantly afraid of God removing things and taking things out. The purpose of this is twofold. First, it is to make us more fruitful as Christians. We see that in John chapter 15. He says, every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth. Why? So that it would bring forth more fruit. It's to help us become more fruitful as Christians. Secondly, it is to conform you, to conform I, more into the image of Christ. That is the ultimate goal with the purging, the cleansing of our lives. It's so that you and I each day look a little bit more like the image of Christ. Turn over to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, an incredible passage that is Romans 8. We're looking at just one verse, though. Verse number 29, Romans chapter 8, verse 29. Paul writes, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. If we have been saved, if we have accepted Christ into our heart, we are on the path to become like Christ. Uh, the ultimate goal for our lives is to look like Christ, to be conformed to the image of his Son. Philippians chapter 1 gives us this very encouraging thought, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. The goal of the purging in our lives as Christians, whether from sin or whether from just something that God looks at our lives and says, hey, that doesn't look like me. That doesn't look like the way it should. The goal of the purging is so that you and I will be made into the image of Christ. That is the ultimate goal. 
I saw an illustration for this several years ago, and it's stuck in my mind. Brother Rob, if I could get you just up here real quick. The illustration was God being the master sculptor and you and I being the marble that he is working with. And we come to God and we say, all right, Lord, I've been saved. I know your, your purpose for me is to be conformed into the image of God, the image of your son. Go ahead. And he comes to us with the hammer and the chisel and he begins to look for some different areas Right there. Let's cut off there. And we get scared. We say, whoa, wait a second. That chisel looks awful sharp. And you're in some areas that I don't know that I really want you adjusting. I don't really want you touching. Well, there's some, there's some sin down there. There's some sin over there. And we say, all right, I'll let you do a few chisels over here. There's a couple things over here. Uh, there's a little spot down here. And then all of a sudden, God comes to this spot over here. Whoa, wait a second, God. All those other areas where you were, I, those, those were sins, I got that. But wait a second, that right there, that's not against any Ten Commandments. That's not against uh, any of the, 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 what we're supposed to do as Christians. And God says, yeah, but it doesn't look like me. It doesn't look like the image of Christ. And I'm not trying to make you just into the best image of yourself or anything like that. The goal is to make you to make me into the image of Christ. And so when we get to this point, we are given two options. God is not going to force himself on us as Christians any more than he forces salvation on anyone else. When we get to this point where God says, there's this little spot here that I would like to remove, we have two choices. We can... We can resist God. We can say, no, I'm holding on to that. That you can't touch. That you can't have. Or we can look at what God wants to say, hey, you know the image of your son. You know what I'm ultimately supposed to look like, and you know the best way to get me there. And when we do that, when we come to that point of surrender, we can say, all right, this little spot here, that one hurt a little bit, but if it's not supposed to be there, you're the master sculptor. Amen. You know that. This little spot over here, no more in my life. You don't want that there. It doesn't look like the image of your son. Whatever you want, God, I will let you purge. I will let you remove. I'll let you chip off these little areas that you see in my life that don't line up with the image of your son. Thank you, Brother Rob. With that thought in mind, this message applies to everyone because until we die, we stand before God, we get our glorified bodies, none of us ever in this life will reach the point of being fully as the image of God. There is always going to be something, whether it's a, in our, our minds a big something or whether it's just this little chip when, when a sculptor is sculpting, there's sometimes there's big chunks of marble that come off. Sometimes there's just these little tiny shavings. But we need to allow God to have free reign in our lives, to shape us, to purge us the way he sees fit, to make us more fruitful, to conform us 
into the image of God. I don't know where exactly you are this morning. It may be that you're here this morning and you've never been saved. And the purging that you need is the purging of your account of sin with God. That needs to be settled. It was paid for by Christ. Now it's simply a gift that you need to accept into your life. But if you're here and you're saved this morning, every one of us has areas that God wants to purge in our lives. I have on purpose not been specific, very vague, because it's different for every one of us. Uh, and I'm hoping, I'm praying that you will allow the Holy Spirit to work in your life and show you what it is, what maybe little area, what maybe big area that God wants to purge out, that God wants to prune out, distractions, uh, things that cause us to be uh, more focused on the world than Christ. Whatever, we could fill in the blank with a whole number of different things. But the point is, when we get to that point where the Holy Spirit speaks, just a moment, as the, the ladies sang in that song about being the image of Christ, when we come to that point, are we going to resist the purging of God the pruning of God and hold on to those areas of our life that God wants to remove out? Or are we going to allow him free reign to mold us, to shape us into what he sees for us, which is the image of Christ? He knows best what that looks like. Because remember, Christ is the image of God and God knows that we are being made into the image of Christ. We can't see all of what that looks like. But we have that choice then to resist or surrender to the purging, the pruning of God in our lives. Lord, we love you. Lord, thank you for your...